Ancient, uh, so we go right into the message here. Ancient Israel's request for a king revealed a lot more about them than their desire for a different governmental form and structure. In 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5, we read this request to the judge Samuel. They said, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So there was this penchant in them where they wanted to align with those around them rather than the special governmental structure that God had given them with him as king. In verse 7, God responds. He says uh, to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they tell you or say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now, God knew and understood from the very beginning that Israel had no heart in them to benefit fully from his rule. Uh, he said that in Deuteronomy 5, verses, uh, verse 29, he said, I, boy, I wish they had a heart in them that they would obey me, and so on. He knew that Israel couldn't do that. Uh, they preferred to be governed like all the other nations of the earth. Now, this was consistent with their fearful request at Mount Sinai. Uh, when God spoke to them from uh, the mountain and uh, relayed his commandments to them, uh, they were very fearful uh, and requested that uh, God should not speak to them directly anymore, but wanted Moses to intercede for them. That request was very similar. That's in Exodus 21 and verse 18. Now, God referred to Israel as a kingdom of priests, or that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's in Exodus 19, verse 6. Uh, and their loyalty, though, would only go so far. They were only capable of so much relying on God as king. And the book of Judges is a sad record of their inability to rule themselves under the freedom that God's law provided them. So God gave them what they wanted. We uh, live amongst the nations of Israel, the nation of Israel in this day and age, and we can see that same penchant today, a misunderstanding of the responsibilities of freedom, of living under the same law and respecting that law and others. Uh, it's been the basis of all of these troubles that we see in our, our country today and in a, uh, throughout the world. Now, though God would set Israel apart from the nations of the earth for a special purpose, it's not the special purpose that they, they had in mind. He saw that they could not uh, fully obey him so that their ability in that special purpose was limited. Their lack of faith, as we read in Hebrews 8 and other places, limited them to the status of a physical nation. And their covenant with God was limited to physical promises. So as we know now, this was necessary. Uh, it was a lesson for all of humanity, and specifically for us as well. In, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, he said that. He told us that we were to learn from their example, Israel's example. Uh, again, it was necessary for God to show the entirety of the world and us the futility of independent human initiative in achieving his purpose. It's not something that we can do on our own. And Israel's fall became this example again for us and for every nation on earth. God's plan, as we understand it, is not limited to the nation of Israel. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, he says that he desires all men, all humanity, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
But as the Bible explains, this happens in stages, stages that most uh, even professing Christians in this day and age do not understand. How he would do this, how he would accomplish this, call all of humanity, give every, every one of humanity an opportunity to be part of the God family, and those stages have to be known. And for those who don't know or understand them, especially as it relates to the church, um, this is a mystery. Uh, today is the uh, 12th message in our series on the 14 mysteries of God. Uh, these are special, uh, it's special understanding uh, that is given uh, only by God's revelation. These mysteries are revealed only to those God chooses to reveal them. And largely how the individuals who live and embrace those revelations helps them to understand them. Now previously we've examined the mysteries of God himself his will, his wisdom, his Christ, his kingdom, the mystery of the faith, the mystery of his holy institution of marriage, the mystery of godliness, and last time we covered the mystery of lawlessness. With each of these, we've learned to better appreciate the distinctive blessings of these revelations and what they, what they provide for those who order their lives by them. Um, but we have also learned that why these mysteries remain a mystery to those who do not do this, don't order their lives by them. Today we will review the mystery of the Gentiles as heirs. Let's go to Ephesians chapter three, we'll read verses one through seven here initially. Ephesians is a, a book written by Paul to Gentile converts. And as you read the first couple of chapters, in fact, all of them point directly to uh, the unity that Gentiles now had with Jews in their relationship with God. But the, the context of that unity is what's not understood by many today. Let's begin reading in Ephesians 3 and verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of, Je of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, this was revealed to Paul on the road to Damascus, or shortly thereafter, that he would be his uh, apostle to the Gentiles. That's in uh, Acts 9. Verse 3, he writes, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. In Ephesians 1 and verse 9, he makes reference to the mystery of God's will. We covered that earlier. It's broader than this specific uh, mystery of the Gentiles as heirs uh, and partakers. We'll read that verse in a moment. Um, but this is uh, uh, understanding God's will more generally is, is something we covered earlier. Verse four, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. We covered that as well. Those are foundational to understanding uh, the mystery of the Gentiles as heirs. Verse five, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, these are not the prophets of old, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on. There are allusions to this, but they did not understand this mystery. It was revealed first to Peter in uh, Acts chapter 10 when he was sent to Cornelius. He was shocked that the Holy Spirit was given to Gentiles. He was shocked by that, that they were being added to this group, this special body of Christ. And then Paul, when Paul was called in, in chapter 9, uh, and his work took off after that. I think he spent three years learning directly from Christ 
and then his mission became specifically that. And it was, it was the main subject, circumcision, whether, whether or not a convert needed to be circumcised, was the main subject that was contested uh, in Acts chapter 15, the, uh, the council uh, and the meeting of all the uh, leaders of the church at that time. Verse 5 again, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has uh, now been revealed by the Spirit, that's important, to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So what Paul writes here, again, was not understood by the Old Testament writers. It was the prophets of the New Testament that he was referring to, Peter himself and so on, who would prophesy of what would be to come. And this was revealed specifically to Peter and Paul initially and agreed to and understood by the, the leaders of the church at the Acts 15 conference. Verse 6 is what I want to focus on here and what we should understand in this mystery that he's referring to here, the Gentiles as heirs. Well, fellow heirs is what they're called here, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of what? It says of the same body. What body? Well, it's the body of Christ. Now, this, I'll read three scriptures here. I could, we could do a lot more, but I'll just actually four here that make reference to this so that we understand what body it is that they are, they are becoming heirs of. To be in Christ, in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, The cup of the blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion or fellowship of the body of Christ? We speak of this as we prepare for Passover every year, that that reference isn't just to the bread, or to the bread that we eat the night of the Passover, but that the bread itself is symbolic of the greater body that we're in, the body of Jesus Christ. That if we carry his spirit, he is in us and we are in him, we abide in him. That's what those uh, chapters in John speak of. So, so. Uh, so eloquently, the night of the Passover, John 13 through 17. Also here, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14. Here he's talking about various gifts that, that he gives the body for the, for the benefit of the entire body, not just individuals who have the gift. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, he writes, Paul writes, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Um, chapter four, which we'll go into more detail later in this message, we recognize the oneness and the unity that is in the body of Christ. Verse 13 now, 1 Corinthians 12. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, in uh, Galatians 3, verse 28, he makes the same point, Galatians 3 and verse 28, but he adds male, female. We are no longer male and female. When all are one in Christ, there's no separation between Jew and Greek. It's a point he's making here in Ephesus, or to the people in Ephesus. There's no separation between slave or free anymore in the body of Christ. No separation between male and female. We all become part of the same body. Now, we're all still male-female. We all have, uh, uh, we all were raised or, or reared in different nations, different backgrounds, different ethnic origins, and so on. 
Some of us are, are uh, more blessed than others with respect to occupation. Uh, but we, and, and in this age, we live that way. But in Christ, we are all one. We are all unified. Also, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. We're all individual members. But as part of the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ, we are to be one, unified as one. So in essence, the same body, this, this inheritance that the Gentiles now had an opportunity to receive was to have the opportunity to be in Christ. Non-Israelites now have the opportunity to be in Christ, to be part of the body of Christ, to be in his church, his spiritual body. Also in, in verse 6, Paul makes mention of what they partake of. Uh, he says, and partakers of his promise. Well, what promise? Uh, the promise of God's Holy Spirit. What unifies us in the body of Christ is God's very spirit within us. Again, I'll, I'll read four verses for you here that make reference to this. You can write these down. Luke 24 and verse 49. Luke 24, 49. Christ says, behold, he's talking to his apostles. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. It's a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Feast of Pentecost that year. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. Uh, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded, not, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you have heard from me, making reference back to Luke 24. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Also Acts 2, verse 33. Acts 2, verse 33. Uh, Peter says, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And, and verse 39 uh, in Acts 2 as well. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. This promise now is based upon a calling that God makes to the Gentiles, the entirety of the world, not limited to the descendants of Israel. And they are brought into the body of Christ when they are given his Holy Spirit. They go through the process that the church goes through, every member. Repentance that God grants, that they embrace. Faith that God grants, that they believe in and that they act upon. Re baptism into the body of Christ, into the death and life of Christ. And then the gift of the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands. This is talking about the church. It's talking about the church. Non-Israelites now have the opportunity to have God's spirit in Christ. It's talking about the church. What God was offering the Gentiles was not favored nation status as Israel had and still has. Uh, it wasn't saying that he wasn't saying that he was going to align them up next to Israel on the same national plane. He was offering them entrance into the body of Christ to be spirit led called out ones, first fruits that will stand at Christ's side at his return in spirit as spirit beings 
they, were, they would become the part of the body of Christ, part of the bride of Christ, they would become his church. Now, what is a mystery to those who do not understand this is how God's church is a spiritual nation separate from the nations of this earth. This is a monumental uh, assumption that, that somehow the church of God would have some kind of rule over the nations of this earth in this age. And you see this all over the place. You see religious organizations espousing Christ, trying to manipulate governments, trying to influence governments of this age. It is a completely different entity, the spiritual body of Christ versus a physical nation of this earth. And that's where they miss the point. Now, let's understand here now the difference between the nation of Israel and the church of God. Many who think that they understand this mystery that Paul is referring to here in Ephesus, or to Ephesus, chapter 3, verse 6, believe that the church somehow replaces Israel. This teaching has been called replacement theory or fulfillment theory. It's also known as supersessionism. Supersessionism, lots of S's in that word. Um, it is a view of God's covenant with the spiritual body of his church as a replacement of his covenant with Israel. Because they see them on the same plane, church of God and its rulership, the nation of Israel and their, their uh, rulership. Now this is what leads many to think that the law is done away that somehow the church competes with the nation of Israel, and that covenant is gone, it's over. We don't need three quarters of the Bible anymore, we've got this, we've got the New Testament, that's all we need. You sometimes see Bibles, that call themselves Bibles, that look really thin, and you go, wow, this must be really tiny print, and you open up and you recognize it's only the New Testament. But it's like, it's like turning, it's like walking into the last 15 minutes of a movie. You have no idea what went on before that. And you need the Old Testament to understand it, to put the church's commission into context. Um, this, is, this, again, causes all kinds of disagreements within uh, the professing Christian churches who do not understand the commission of the church. Those with this view don't see the difference between the physical nation of Israel and the spiritual body of the church. Let's keep reading here in Ephesians 3 and understand this. Verse 8, to me, who am, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, this was not previously known or understood. Verse 9, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. This entire concept of a spiritual body of Christ, the church itself, first fruits that would be preparing to serve at Christ's side at his return was not understood, alluded to uh, in, in the Old Testament prophecies, but not understood fully. Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is not just known among the nations of the earth. It will be at some point in time, certainly not now. But it's, the church is proving God correct in what he was doing, proving the wisdom of God, how he brings all this together, how, how the entire plan for salvation of mankind, of humanity, has stages 
has elements to it that are not necessarily related at their beginnings, but will be related by him in his plan. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This is access to the very throne of God. And again, he's speaking here to the Gentiles because they were feeling somewhat intimidated by the history and the nationality of the Jews and, and the nation of Israel. Verse 13, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We are the church of God. We are preparing for the kingdom of God. We are the children of God. The Gentiles now take on that name, the name of God, same as everyone else God calls into his church. Uh, verse 16, I should say he elects into his church. Many are called. Few are elected. Few are chosen. And there's a reason for that we'll talk about in a moment. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. His spirit in man. You'd be surprised at how many commentaries don't understand that concept. That literally Christ and God himself, by the power of their spirit, reside within every believer, every repentant believer. They see an agent of the Holy Spirit as a person working with us, but not God and Christ literally living within us, as the Bible says. Verse 18, uh, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The fact that we believe God enough to act on what he says and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend uh, with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This goal, this, this understanding that that humanity was designed to literally be in the family of God, living as God, it's, it's almost blasphemous to some, to most. But it's, it's clearly the teaching of the scripture for those to whom it's revealed. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul's letter to the Ephesians reveals that God's plan is universal, open to all humanity. And it's not limited to any racial or ethnic group of people. Jew and Gentile are to become one body in Christ. That's what that phrase means. If we are in Christ, we share Christ within. This is to be a unified family of faithful believers not of earthly nations. No earthly nation, including ancient Israel, could make that statement that they were a faithful believer in God. Quite the opposite. Their history and God's word shows otherwise. Now the objective of these called out ones, the ones that God calls from every nation on the earth to be part of the church in this age, the, the objective uh, was to come to know, as Paul writes here, the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of God's love. 
This is understanding God's love in every capacity, not just for us, but within us, shared with others. To become love as God is love, 1 John 4. Uh, and, And then as a result of being that way, then being filled with all of his fullness, that every human being would have this opportunity to transition into being a God being. Again, this this is blasphemous for most people. Impossible, hard to even understand. But this is what the Gentiles as heirs and partakers mean. Um, Heirs of the body of Christ uh, and, and partakers of the Holy Spirit. This is the aspiration that fosters a very different relationship with God and with one another that no nation of the earth could encompass. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 here. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll read verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That phrase, priesthood, holy nation, is actually taken from Exodus 19.6. It made reference to earlier. But this description is very, very different. Not a nation of this earth, not structured or led as nations of this earth are not even by the same laws. There's a a different relationship that we have with God spiritually that makes us a spiritual nation, very different than a nation of this earth. But you are a chosen generation, a role of priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, the word people here is a reference to a nation, but are now the people of God. So the the word people is translated from the Greek word laos, which means it's it's spelled L-A-O-S, laos or laos. It literally means a nation or community that is bound by common language, common culture, uh, a nation, a community. Now, in a sense, we were not a people. None of us would have even known one another. Some of us may have had similar backgrounds from one degree to another, but we weren't a people prior to this election into the body of Christ. Now we are a, a people. We do, have, um, uh, we do have a common language. It's the word of God. Okay, it's not a language of men. It's not Hebrew or Greek or whatever, but we speak to one another. We communicate on the same level. We speak the same spiritual language. And I'm not talking about tongues here. We connect through the pages of scripture and the spirit of God within the body of Christ. We have the same culture. The church has its own culture. Language and culture are inexorably tied. We have God's laws. We are a society, a community of God. Uh, we are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Wait a minute, sojourners and pilgrims? How are, how are we sojourners and pilgrims as a community? We're a spiritual community on a physical planet. We don't have a nation in this day and age. In fact, we look foolish to most nations of men. And our structure and design, from their perspective, we don't even have a king because the king is spiritual. And our unity that binds us together is not the hard keeping of laws. It has much more to do with a spiritual desire to be lawful under God. 
Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. The Gentiles would have a day of God's visitation. Uh, very important for us to keep in mind. This is referring again not to a physical nation, but to those who were not a nation, not a people, but now are in Christ and of God's Holy Spirit, a spiritual nation. I just want to look at this verse here and see that this was prophesied, though not completely understood. Deuteronomy 32. Moses mentions this in the Song of Moses, obviously inspired by God. But it's quite fascinating, and it kind of lays out the reason God does this in stages. The, uh, the offer made to Israel as a physical nation that, that they, could, they could not fulfill even uh, as a physical nation, but eventually would have that opportunity down the road. What would need to happen in the meantime? Uh, in verse 21 of Deuteronomy 32, uh, he touches on this. They, Israel, have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God's. They, they were worshiping idols and provoking God because they were worshiping things that were physical in nature, had nothing to do with, uh, with worshiping him. Uh, they have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. To them, we look foolish. I had a conversation once with a guy who was a, uh, a descendant of, of the Jews. I mean, he, his nationality was Jewish, uh, descended from the lines of Judah. And, uh, but he was what they call today a reformed Jew, which means they don't keep the spiritual laws or the laws of God. They don't even honor the Sabbath all that much. He came to know me over a period of time and, and at work, and then he came to me one day, and uh, he said, he sat down in my cubicle, and he said, Brian, I don't understand. I said, what? He said, I don't understand. You're not Jewish. So why are you keeping Jewish holy days, Jewish, Jewish laws, the Sabbath? What? I don't understand. Why are you doing this? And I tried to explain. I said, well, I said, the Jews were just one tribe of the nation of Israel. He says, yeah, the other nations were scattered, and they're, they're more people practicing these kinds of things than just the Jews. Um, so I, I kind of recognize and understand that. And I also realize that what God shared with the nation of Israel was based upon his eternal law. So I, I, I adopt those, that understanding in order to have the same relationship with God because he's, in, he's called me and invited me to do that. He didn't understand a word of that. <laughs> he just saw me as foolish. I'm foolish. Why are you trying to be a Jew when you're not a Jew? There is this concept of the nationality of the Jews, but there's also this religion of God that the Jews feel they have a uh, stranglehold on. And when, we, when somebody else, not a Jew, keeps God's laws, it seems foolish to them. And by this, God will provoke them and the rest of Israel to jealousy. Wait a minute, these are our laws. This is our God. What, is he, what are you doing this for? Especially the Gentiles. He was going to use that to provoke them. Um, uh, the church seems a very pathetic nation among men. 
but uh, the church will challenge every nation, including Israel, to be more, uh, be more than they currently are physically before God. God has not finished as well with the nation of Israel. Look at uh, Romans chapter 11 here. Romans chapter 11. We'll begin reading verses 1 through 11, but the whole chapter is just outstanding in trying to understand this concept. Romans 11, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? He's making reference to Israel. He says, certainly not. For I'm also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. This is a, Elijah is a great, great man, but um, limited perspective, not seeing all that God was doing, not understanding the entirety of the plan of God uh, outside of the work that he had been given. Verse 4, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal or Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, meaning God's favor, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, in other words, if Israel could have possibly earned this, then there would be no need for God's grace, his favor. But they couldn't. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Favored nation status, a relationship with the eternal God as their king. If they had this impulse, if they had this longing for that in their heart, they could not achieve it, not through their own works, not through their own individual initiative. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. The elect is a reference to the called out ones, the ones that have God's spirit, led by his spirit into all truth, who are in Christ. And the rest were blinded. So this blindness came upon them so that the Gentiles and those outside of Israel could be elected. Verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. It, this is quoting uh, Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, it adds, um, their well-being became a trap or a snare. The riches, the prosperity puffs us up, blinds us to what God is doing. It, 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 it makes us cease being contrite of heart, cease being poor in spirit. We'll talk about that in the study later part of the Beatitudes, it ceases, it closes off the mind to learning from God or appreciating or trembling at his word, as Isaiah 66.2 says. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them so that their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. This, uh, uh, let me finish verse 11 here. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, totally condemned wiped out of God's plan, replaced by something. No, um, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
Again, Israel faltered as a holy nation uh, before God on this earth. But God has preserved a remnant of them to this day, preserved not by their effort, but by God's favor, God's grace. Let's read verses 12 through 35 here now. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, they will be brought to the fullness of, their, of the uh, covenant agreement that they made with God. Verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their, rec their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, that's, that's us, the first fruits with Christ. Uh, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, Israel, and you being wild olive tree, Gentiles or non-Israelites, were grafted in among them and with them became partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. I mean, don't think, I'm better. You got knocked out. I've got plugged in. I'm much better. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I may gra be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. They believe. We believe enough uh, of God's word to know that we keep God's word in every situation, always. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, all part of the plan. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which was wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We can throw it away. We can walk away from it. We can disdain it. God never takes it away. Verse 30, for you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, or shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them to all, or committed all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Then this comment here at the end, Paul talking about the incredible way that God is working out his plan. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. The Gentiles' conversion into the body of Christ will enable the remnant of Israel to see where they fell short. In belief, in faith, in trusting God. Paul warns the Gentile converts not to be puffed up by this, though, but grateful for God's mercy and inspired by the astounding wisdom of God, lest they suffer the same fate. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 here. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 28. Hebrews 12 and verse 18. Notice the difference in these callings. Israel called before Mount Sinai and us called or elected into the body of Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged so that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. The entire book of Hebrew was, was written to, to help us to understand the difference between that covenant that was made with Israel and the covenant that God makes with his church in this day and age. There are many covenants in scripture that are referred to. Comparing those two, though, helps us to understand the difference between what the church is, what our commission is, what our reward is, what the promises we have are and what they're based on versus those that were promised to the nation of Israel. Verse 20, for they could not endure what was commanded and if, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you, referring to the elect now, the church of God, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, the firstborn there is not a reference to Christ, small f. Translators saw that as a reference to the church itself. Firstborn with Christ. And the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to spirits, the spirits of just men made perfect or complete. Verse 24, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. As they turned away, they couldn't stand hearing it. It's too frightening for us. Have somebody over us to do this. It became structured like every other nation on the planet. That's not our structure. It's very different. We'll explain that in a moment. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, physical things, that the things which cannot be shaken, spiritual things, may remain, especially those led by his spirit into all truth. Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, spiritual kingdom, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Much different, much different design 
than any nation of earth. God's covenant with those in the body of Christ is far more glorious than his agreement with those of the nation of Israel. God's elect are the church of the firstborn. They're registered in heaven. Philippians 3.20 talks about having our citizenship in heaven. Not that we go there, but that Christ brings it with him at his return to establish God's kingdom. The spirits of just men made perfect. That describes the church of God, not the nation of Israel. God is working with us to completion. What is the completion? The very fullness of God within. A physical nation can be shaken. A spiritual one cannot. Now, both Gentiles and Jews are called into a spiritual, not a national unity here. Let's look at this in Ephesians 4. We go to Ephesians 4 a lot. It describes the unity God wants in his church. But it also describes not just how that unity is, is built and fashioned, but an organizational structure that's structured very differently than any nation on earth. Um, first, uh, we'll go through verse 1 of Ephesians 4 through verse 16. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Does this describe any nation on earth ever, including Israel? Verse 4, there is one body, one spirit. Seven things are mentioned here that describe the unity within the church of God. And none of these could describe any nation on earth. No physical nation. One body and two, one spirit, just as you were called in one, three, hope of your calling. One Lord, that's four. One faith, that's five. One baptism, that's six. And one God and Father of all, that's seven, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is, these are the basis, the seven key elements that unite us all in the body of Christ by the Spirit of God within us. Gentiles, Jews, every nation on the planet. But, but separating from those nations, that's really critical, we understand, being in the body of Christ. A spiritual kingdom does not intermingle does not have part of physical kingdoms any longer. And we don't judge each other by that. I don't care what our nationality is. I don't care what country we came from or what our origins are, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that we have this level of unity because this is what leads us to the fullness of God and Christ within us. Verse 7, But to each one, every member of us, grace or favor was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We all have different gifts. Again, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 is very clear on that. But they're all given to us individually so that everybody, everybody else in the body of Christ, that spiritual organism, benefits from them. That's why they have to be based on love, rooted and grounded in love, so that we know how to share them with one another. That grows the unity of the church even further. Verse 8, therefore he says, when he, in reference to Christ, ascended on high, he led captivity captive, talk about freedom, and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, that does not mean, uh, uh, does it mean but that he also, this is a tough wording here. Now this, he ascended, in quotation marks. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? In other words, he died, 
to make this possible, but was resurrected. Verse 10, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavenly things that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be kings. No, senators, congressmen, presidents. No, uh, prime ministers. No, czars. No. He gave some to be apostles. Some, not all. Nobody takes that commission upon themselves. Christ gives it. Some prophets. Again, Christ's gift. Not something we just decide, ah, you know what? I'm going to study really hard and I'm going to learn to be a prophet. <laughs> no. That's not the way this works. That's the way it may work in a nation of men not in the spiritual body of Christ. Some evangelists, are we evangelists? No, it's an assigned position by Christ, it's a gift. Some pastors and teachers are shepherds. What, for what purpose? 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, serving for the edifying of the body of Christ, serving one another, growing into that perfect body of Christ. Verse 13, 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's interesting, he, he spoke of the, the unity of the Spirit early on in this chapter, until we come to the unity of the faith. We don't always have uh, the same understanding and application of the Scriptures. We could disagree. If we dig down deep, we recognize we disagree on some level, even in the practice of how we keep things like the Sabbath and holy days. But we are the same spirit. So there is this faith within us that knows we will get to the practice of the faith together. God will lead us to that. We trust in that. We don't separate over issues of faith. We combine over the power of the spirit and trust in God that he will get us to that end. Now, clearly, someone who's forsaken the faith, who completely abandons God's law, his word walks the other way, they're gone. The, the, the Hebrews 6 describes them as having fallen away. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the minor disagreements that we may have in practice. We've got we to gotta believe that God will work all those kinks out over time. We're moving on to perfection, the very fullness of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, spiritual body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now that reference to everyone's share is, does not mean we all do the same thing, okay? I said this before, a, a football team all wear the same uniform, same equipment usually, they're on the same playing field and their goal is to win the same game. But they all have very unique assignments. Just because I'm a great blocker, a 300-pound 6'5 guard, doesn't mean that if the quarterback falls, I can step in and do his job. It doesn't work that way. 
God gives special gifts and he assigns all of them in place in the church through Christ in those gifts. And we need to respect all of those and, and do our individual jobs. Now, um, both Gentiles and Jews are called into this same body. One body, one spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God and Father of all. The goal, again, is to develop the very measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the church is organized to do this. Again, very differently than the nations of earth. Uh, the church was never supposed to become like a nation of this earth. This was never the commission um, that the church was given. It was the commission given the nation of Israel to become a nation of this earth, to be an example to the nations of this earth, not necessarily a good one, and an example to us of knowing how not to do it. They struggled at that. They failed at it. And they're, they're, the covenant they had with God was not based upon the same promises because they did not have the same faith. But they will have the same faith eventually. The legacy of ancient Israel as the people of God is a profound one. Now, some believe that since God gave them what they wanted, a divorce from him, that they have no way to return. But that's simply not true in accordance with Scripture. Look at Isaiah chapter 2 here. We read this around the Feast of Tabernacles every year. It describes the millennium and life and God's purpose and will in the millennium. But look at what is said here. Uh, Isaiah 2, we'll read verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. These are references to governments. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. War is how the nations of this earth settle matters between one another won't happen again in the millennium however the nations of this age will be there in the millennium including israel he will preserve those nations all the nations of this earth will exist into the millennium because they're on the same path just at a different timing a different level a, a different part of the plan in this age they will have their opportunity. And Israel will be the leading nation that God intended them to be in the millennium. Let's look at Isaiah 11 here. Just three more scriptures here just to summarize this point. Isaiah 11 verses 10 and 12. Now in that day, now prior to this, he's talking about the calf and the young lamb and the, and the lion living together uh, uh, um, and, and all that peace that we always refer to during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 10, he says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner uh, to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time 
to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Look at Jeremiah 31 here. Jeremiah 31 is where he summarizes this, uh, this new covenant, verses 30, 31, 32. The beginning of the chapter starts like this, though. Jeremiah 31, we'll read verses 1 through 12. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Um, Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your or tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall let plant uh, vineyards in the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of the stronger than he, of one stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, uh, streaming to the goodness of the Lord uh, for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall all sorrow no more at all. The last one here in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, we often uh, turn to on the, the last great day to describe the resurrection to the physical Let's read verses 21 through 28 here. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will make the children of Israel from among the nations where, I'm sorry, surely I will take the, the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor will their detestable things, with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them 
then they shall be my people and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given uh, to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. We can keep reading, but for sake of time, and there are many other scriptures we could turn to. Again, Israel will be the leading nation, physical nation that God intended them to be, and through their leadership of all of the physical nations, the church will oversee and help and guide in bringing all people to God, all people to the same calling he gives to all in this age who are brought into his, his family, the church, the body of Christ, and having the indwelling God's spirit. The covenant that God made with the physical nation of Israel does not compete with the covenant that God makes now with his church. One does not replace the other. And both are built on God's eternal law, which will never be done away with. The spiritual body of Christ is not like any physical nation of this earth. Loyalty to it requires its members to forsake their former physical nations, Jew or Gentile, and their differences with the other nations of this earth. We cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot serve the spiritual kingdom of God and any physical nation of this earth. We are called to something completely different, elected to something completely different. Now, for those who do not understand what this means, to literally inherit the body of Christ and literally partake of the promise of the gift of God's spirit, to them, all of this remains a mystery. 